This morning's reading is Job chapter 9 verses 1 to 24 and then verses 32 to 35. Job replied, Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Though they wished to dispute with him, they could not answer him once in a thousand times. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes their pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I can't see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me catch my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can challenge him? Even if I were innocent, my white mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It is all the same. That is why I say... He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to mediate between us, 
someone to bring us together someone to remove god's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more then i would speak up without fear of him but as it now stands with me i cannot this is the word of the lord thanks be to god let's pray heavenly father we thank you for your love for us and we recognize that you are greater than we can even imagine and sometimes we can't always understand the ways you work but that's good because you are a bigger god than we are if we could understand you you wouldn't be that big so we thank you for that and we ask that you would help us to understand your word and your ways just a little bit more this morning in jesus name amen we heard earlier from psalm 84 my soul yearns even faints for the courts of the lord my heart and my flesh cry out for the living god the psalmist longs for god with all of his being all that he is calls out to god and so as we continue in our series in Job this morning, the title that Ben has set for today is, or should I say the question that we should be asking ourselves this morning is, do we, do I really long for God? A very quick summary of the, the story so far. We know that God has allowed Satan to bring suffering on Job, a man that God himself describes as blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan takes everything away from Job, his wealth, his livestock, even his children, and then afflicts him from head to toe with painful sores. It can't get any worse. Then his wife has a go at him. And as we heard from Susan last week, three friends come to bless Job with their wisdom and their advice. Or not. Not so much a blessing. We're always thrilled, aren't we, when someone comes to faith in Christ. We join in the rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. But sometimes we do see people turn their back on God and leave Christianity. And there are probably lots of reasons. One perhaps being that they just drift away. They get busy and life changes and they stop praying and they stop reading the Bible and they stop going to church. And before they know where they are, they, they don't have a faith anymore. But other people turn their back on God because of suffering. Something so terrible has happened to them or someone dear to them that they just can't understand how a loving all-powerful God could allow that to happen. And this is Job's situation, isn't it? Something so terrible. His suffering is beyond all measure. So how does he respond to God? Well, there are eight speeches from Job in chapters 4 to 27, which you've all read before you've come this morning, I'm sure. But there are eight speeches as this righteous and upright yet suffering man 
reacts to how others view his situation and speaks a little bit about what he thinks God is doing. The passage we heard read is the beginning of Job's second speech and and last week we looked at what his friends had to say and this week we're thinking more about some of Job's words as he responds to his friends. And he begins the passage, he begins his speech by agreeing with Bildad's assertion that God is just. And then he goes on to speak of the great power that God has in verses 4 to 13. Verse 4, his wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Verse 5, he moves mountains without them knowing it. Verse 6, he shakes the earth from its place. Verse 7, he speaks to the sun and it doesn't shine, and so on. Verse 10, he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed and miracles that cannot be counted. Job is very clear that God is all-powerful. And then in verses 14 to 20, Job recognises that he is no match for God. God's vastness is mirrored by his smallness. He concludes in verses 19 to 20, If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can challenge him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. And then in the the next section, in verses 21 to 24, it seems that Job is past caring about himself. But he sees that unfair suffering is happening all over the place. And he makes the harsh accusation that God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. And this is the struggle. This is a real, deeply painful and perplexing dilemma for Job and for all believers. From the human perspective, it seems that either God is not in control or he is not there. And Job's comforters, we heard last week, get round the problem with dogmatic denial. In their view, undeserved suffering never happens. If someone suffers, it proves that they deserve it. But as Susan said last week, we must never fall for that lie. We can only believe that line of thought if we close our eyes to the world around us. We live in a world where righteous people suffer daily, sometimes for their faith, sometimes because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, and sometimes for no discernible reason. Personally, I don't believe I experienced three miscarriages because God was punishing me. That's not true. I do believe that God could have prevented them, and I don't know for sure why he didn't. I do know that I called out to him in my suffering. I also know that he was with me in my time of loss, and it would have been much harder without him. This is the problem of pain, 
We believe in a good God, yet bad things happen. And there is no easy answer as to why. In his book, Out of the Storm, which is the book that we're using as a guide to this series in Job, Christopher Ash points out that this is only a real problem for those who believe in a sovereign God. Whilst all might be angry at the unfairness of the world, the unbeliever who doesn't believe in a good, all-powerful creator God has no basis on which to expect fairness or logic in a world that came about purely by chance. To illustrate this, Ash quotes a survivor of Auschwitz. The survivor writes, It never occurred to me to question God's doings or lack of doings while I was an inmate at Auschwitz. I was no more religious because of what the Nazis did to us, and I believe my faith in God was not undermined in the least. It never occurred to me to associate the calamity we were experiencing with God or to blame him because he didn't come to our aid. Now, some might say that sounds like a good, resilient faith, but actually, it's more the words of an unbeliever. I think a true believer would be with Job railing at God, passionately arguing against the injustice on it all, calling on the sovereign God to do something. True believers who really long for God will keenly feel the pain of an unfair world and have to live with the difficult dilemma of a good God who creates a good world but where bad things happen. But those true believers don't do that quietly. Job isn't silent in his accusation of God. Although Job accuses God of being unfair, he longs and yearns with all his heart to bring his situation to God. We see hints of that in our passage in verse 3 and in verses 14 to 17. The idea of meeting with God is terrifying, yet he longs to do it. We look at chapter 13, verse 15, he says... Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. And if you read all of Job's speeches from chapters 4 to 27, it isn't just that he wants an opportunity to defend himself. He wants God. He loves God. He knows that he needs God. And despite all his suffering, Job knows that God is all that he has. He longs not for the restoration of his wealth and his riches, but with all his heart, with great passion, he longs for a restored relationship with God. Some verses from chapter 14 in the Message Version. Why don't you just bury me alive? Get me out of the way until your anger cools. But don't leave me there. Set a date when you will see me again. If we humans die, will we live again? That's my question. All through these difficult days, I keep hoping, waiting for the final change, for resurrection, 
homesick with longing for the creature you made. You will call and I will answer. Just say the word, says Job. I'll be there. And when I was thinking about this, I was reminded of Peter's response in John chapter 6, where many of Jesus' followers were leaving because they found his teaching so hard. Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Both Job and Peter, where else can we go? You are our hope. You are our God. But there is a section in the passage that we haven't considered yet. Remember verses 14 to 20, we see Job emphasising the power of God. And in 21 to 24, we see Job wrestling with the way that God exercises that power. But John also read to us verses 32 to 35. God is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I cannot. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove the punishment, someone to take away the terror. Mm. If only there was someone. Do you know anyone? In his first letter to Timothy, Paul writes of a God who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And he goes on to say, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for his people. Job recognised that there was a great chasm between him and the God whom he loved despite everything. For those of us who are in Christ, that chasm no longer exists. Sorry, more scripture. I think the Bible says it better than me. This is from Hebrews 10 in the message version. So friends, we can now, without hesitation, walk right up to God into the holy place. Jesus has cleared the way by the blood of his sacrifice, acting as our priest before God. The curtain into God's presence is his body. Let's do it, full of belief, confident that we're presentable inside and out. Note that we approach God with confidence, but not arrogance. We approach with a sense of gratitude, but not of entitlement. 
the curtain or the door into God's presence is Jesus' death and resurrection. Job would have been through that door in a shot. So do we really long for God? The Apostle Paul longed for God. This is what he wrote. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I'm not sure I know exactly what participation in his suffering actually means, and I'm definitely not sure that I want to experience it. But I do know that I want to know Christ better. Which of us is truly longing for God? Christopher Ash speaks of the two marks of a true believer or a true worshipper in his chapter on this passage. Is the true worshipper the one sitting comfortably in his house, surrounded by family and friends with a sumptuous banquet before him, confidently giving thanks to the generous God who has provided everything he has? Maybe, maybe not. And if so, would they still be worshipping if their circumstances changed and everything was taken away? Maybe, maybe not. A number of years ago, someone commented to me how lovely it was to see a certain person in the music group raising their hands as they sang out the hymns of praise at the front of church. You could really tell they were worshipping. Is that true? Is that how you tell who are the true worshippers? Job would tell us that it is our response to suffering and loss, our own and others, and including those perhaps that we've never met, that will reveal the true worshippers, not what we look like when we sing. And just to be clear, I'm not criticising anyone for putting their hands up when they're singing, but I am criticising those who make judgments based on outward appearance. Job teaches us two things about true worship. Firstly, the true seeker of God will feel keenly the pain of living in a suffering, broken world, and they can't shy away from it. The true seeker of God will feel the frustration of longing for God's kingdom to be on earth as it is in heaven without suffering and pain. And secondly, the true believer, the true seeker of God, will long to be in God's presence to contend for the suffering, the damaged, the hurting, the persecuted, as well as for himself. I want to finish with the conclusion that Christopher Ash comes to, which I found personally very challenging. He writes... Do we, in our church fellowships, long passionately for God? Do we, as individual Christians, long urgently for God? If we do, we shall pray. The comforters, 
would not have bothered to come to their church's prayer meetings. After all, they would have reasoned it's all being sorted out automatically by God anyway. But Job would have been there. Job would have been there every time. And then he goes on to ask this question. If the Lord Jesus returns tomorrow, will he find in us that deep longing for God that pours itself out in prayer? Will he find our church meetings for prayer overflowing, overflowing with people and with prayer? Or will he find a bunch of lukewarm respectables going through the motions? O God, our Father, keep us free from lukewarm hearts. Give us some of the hunger that Job had for you. Purify our hearts and set us apart for your work. 